0: Welcome. Please enter your access code followed by the pound or hash sign. Thank you. Hi, Robert. How have you been since uh, we last hey, talked?
1: I've been, I've been great. It's been busy, but, uh, but things have been going well. Thanks.
0: Excellent. This feels like deja vu. Thank you for agreeing to do this second conversation. <laughs> sure. People send me a lot of follow-up questions on the Supreme Court. I, I really appreciate your oh, help in helping answer them. Absolutely. So here we go in three, two... One. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Political Wire. My friend Tegan Goddard updates Political Wire, what seems, like 24-7. But did you know he's got a membership program that offers readers exclusive analysis, a trending news aggregator, and no advertising on the site? And for my podcast listeners, Tegan's got a special friends-only offer – 20% off an annual subscription. Just go to politicalwire.com slash chris for your discount, and now to the podcast. You may have heard last week's conversation on the Supreme Court with New York Times reporter Adam Liptak. Well, there's something about the Supreme Court, and Liptak, of course, that gets listeners' attention. I received a lot of follow-up questions, so many that I wished I'd had immediate access to another constitutional scholar. Turns out, I did. I already had recorded the second half of the conversation you'll hear today with Robert Tsai. Robert is a professor of law at American University and a prize-winning essayist in constitutional law and history. Previously, he clerked for two federal judges and worked as a civil rights lawyer in Georgia. He's written three books, the most recent of which is The Excellent and Important Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. When we consider remedies to the various inequalities that define these times, from voting restrictions and oppressive measures against migrants to the rights of sexual minorities, victims of police action, even racism in the criminal justice system, existing laws are often incomplete. But in exploring the Constitution and re-examining important historical cases, Tsai explains how legal ideas that aren't necessarily about equality at all ensuring fair play, acting reasonably, avoiding cruelty, and protecting free speech have been used to overcome inequality in the past and can serve as potent alternative tools to promote equality today. Simply, Tsai offers a distinct view and outlines the possible innovative legal measures to overcome injustice. But with all the comments from last week's podcast, I asked Robert for a favor. Would he be willing to do an update call where I could ask him some of the Supreme Court follow-ups I got from listeners? He agreed, so here it is. But before we begin, two items. Make sure to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It offers my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, access to free books, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, please don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Several more of you did, thank you, and it makes a big difference. So, if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Okay, that's it. Here's part one of my conversation with Robert Tsai. Robert, before we get into some of the follow-ups I got from listeners after last week's podcast, let's start with the same question I started with the last time. The first session with two Trump justices on the court is complete. Give me the big picture. Did we see the right word shift that Trump promised and liberals feared? How would you characterize the state of the Supreme Court?
1: I think that uh, there were some pretty clear signs that um – the court that Trump is hoping for is the court that he is starting to get. Now there were a couple of notable uh, exceptions, but I think that I think the biggest case that really um, gives tr- Trump in particular, and I think the uh, the GOP, uh, what they want is the the partisan gerrymandering case. Uh, yeah. uh, most people who. Um, uh, follow kind of uh, American democracy uh, and its uh, difficulties uh, think that uh, partisan gerrymandering is among the um, the highest uh, kind of priorities to deal with uh, it's also one of the hardest questions uh, to deal with um, but uh, you know it, it, it's the kind of thing where um, uh, in our Hyperpolarized times. Uh, one party, at the moment, is the GOP, uh, sees it uh, in its best interests to uh, make the number of people who are eligible to vote as small as possible, um, and uh, and so they have a real incentive to. Um, uh, to use gerrymandering both in a partisan sense and, and also in a, in, a, in a racial sense to drive those numbers down. Um, on the question of race, the court has been willing to stay engaged Although the court has made it harder uh, to make those kinds of claims out, um, notably by weakening the Voting rights act, um, what they've done in the in uh, in this past term on on the question of partisan gerrymandering though is i think going to be a really huge deal. I mean, they basically uh, uh, in a very close case, Uh, decided uh, to sideline the entire federal judiciary. Hmm. Um, So what that means is that the Supreme Court and the entire federal judiciary will simply not be an ally on this question of democratic decline through the use of partisan gerrymandering. I think this is a really uh, huge blow for American democracy.
0: Did, did that surprise you did the decision surprise you or did the taking themselves fully out of it surprise you because yeah and this gets to the heart of most many of the follow-ups that I received was this question of the supreme court's role in our democracy
1: yeah i i think um it, it, it exhibits uh, either uh, there's sort of two interpretations, right? You can say um, either the court in, uh, has its head in the sand, right? Because there's a way in which the uh, you know Just, Chief Justice Roberts talks about the problem as though it's an old problem, and yes, it is, but as though nothing has ever changed. But that's not true, right? The the technology to engage in uh, racial or partisan gerrymandering. Uh, has improved. We have to be able to be more sophisticated in dealing with that problem. We also have to recognize just how anti-democratic the you know the practice really is. And there really isn't that recognition. So I suppose you, one interpretation is that the court simply has its head in the sand about that. But there's another one, which is, um, it kind of brings us back to the question you asked. And that is that um, many people will take away a second interpretation, which is the court um, uh, gave Trump and the GOP exactly what it wants, which is um, the ability to engage in this sort of sophisticated form of gerrymandering uh, without any kind of judicial recourse. Uh, uh, why is this important, you might ask? It's important because in those jurisdictions um, where you've got a minority population um, Either because it's a, a, a let's say you're Hispanic or you're Black and and you can't use the regular po- uh, political process to uh, protect your rights, uh, or you are in the uh, minority party, then the only recourse you really have is uh, is some sort of a judicial one. So that's that's why you know this decision to call um, all of these questions a political in nature and simply. Not justiciable is is so damaging for the cause of democracy. Uh, so I guess I'm not surprised uh, in in the sense that uh, because of the general rightward tilt of the court, the mm. the, the fact that most of the of the justices are uh, have now been picked by Republican uh, presidents, that that this was always a possibility. I am surprised um, that they bypassed what you might call a more centrist or moderate. Uh, solutions. Uh, one of those was a solution um, that had been floated uh, in a number of cases by Justice Kennedy before he left the court, uh, and and I think this was an attractive one, one that aligns with the approach that I take in my book, Practical Equality. Um, and what Justice Kennedy had said repeatedly was that, look, um, you know, partisan gerrymandering isn't just a problem about um, political equality. It's also a problem of um, punishing uh, somebody or treating somebody different because of their viewpoint. And here it's because of their um, membership in a different party. Mm. And in a lot of other contexts, the Supreme Court and federal courts have said um, that's a principle that needs to be defended. And uh, And so that would have been a different way of kind of resolving uh, this issue of, of staying kind of engaged uh, in the fight, um, uh, but the court ended up not taking what I what I think would have been a more moderate and uh, and an entirely defensible route. Um, they, um, you know, so Kavanaugh right replaced Kennedy, but he doesn't uh, take up his mentor's mantle there. And I think that's that really shows us that we, uh, you know, we're really in a different court
0: which uh, segues to some of the follow-ups that I got. Um, and, and the loudest one, it's a little bit related to what you are just talking about, um, was from folks who felt that in the conversation we hadn't sufficiently addressed the big issue, um, let's call it the elephant in the court, and that's legitimacy. Not just with so many people feeling that Merrick, the, the Merrick Garland seat was outright stolen, um, particularly uh, with Trump winning less than fifty percent of the popular vote, but also folks who felt that trump 's attacks on judges, the whole brushback pitch that Roberts had to throw uh, Trump uh, earlier last year, explaining that there are not Obama judges and Bush judges. How worried are you about the court 's legitimacy in american eyes i
1: I, I am um, someone who counts myself among those who um, are worried a little bit about it um, i I think that the court, uh, you know, ideally uh, is thinking about uh, the broader crisis of sort of democratic governance, um, the role that they choose to play or not play, you know, how partisan um, many Americans uh, feel the institution already is. I I think that there um, certainly is at least one member of the court that does think about that from time to time, and that is uh, Chief Justice Roberts, right? I mean, he Uh, famously uh, changed his mind uh, uh, in the Obamacare case, that seemed to be um, one of the things that uh, bothered him, right, Uh, especially uh, with an election year coming up. I think that, I mean, if there's one bright spot in this last term, and I I, I don't want to make too much about it because it's not, you know, I wouldn't want to say it's a trend, but it it does stand out as a bright spot is uh, what Chief Justice Roberts did in joining the liberals in the census case.
0: Yeah, and, um, and perhaps earlier that, in the abortion ruling earlier in the session as well?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think so, although again, I wouldn't make too much of that one because... It
0: was temporary. Yeah, um,
1: yeah and also the, the, the law that uh, was at issue, the one that they stopped, um, uh, at, at least temporarily, looks uh, almost identical to one uh, that the Supreme Court had stopped uh, uh, pretty recently. And although Roberts was on the losing side in that case... uh, You know, I don't think he sees much, if any, daylight between those two laws, and so you know the court would be in a position uh, when it finally looks at this case of either trying to overrule what it just did, which would kind of uh, deepen this crisis of legitimacy. Let's call it right. I don't think I don't think he'd be for that. So uh, so I do I do I do think you're right that it kind of falls in the same uh, general category. Um, although um the only I have caution about the abortion context is I think that if you don 't have an exact law um for which there 's been a precedent i don 't think he can be counted on because that 's the yeah. first uh law that i that I can remember that he 's ever voted to strike down since he 's been on the court mm. so in other words it doesn 't right it doesn 't um signal some sort of newfound uh, interest in abortion rights on the part of justice Roberts or anything like this, I think with a different law i think I think you know um, you know he's very much inclined against uh, against striking those kinds of yeah. things down now the census case is different i think I mean you know it, the census case is very interesting because um most observers um, you know after oral argument thought that um, you know the court was definitely poised to uphold um, the Trump administration's addition of the citizenship question, right? Um, and the reason why so many people were ups- upset or concerned about adding this question uh, is that they, they felt that it was both uh, motivated by, uh, but also would likely have the effect of, Um, depressing the kind of responses, particularly among uh, non-citizens and um, Hispanic people. And um, and so if that's really what the plan was all along, if that's really what's going to happen, this is going to have a huge effect on uh things like um representation right uh and also uh, also how funding is allocated. Um and um uh, and you know what's what 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 is a surprise is that the court um and, and it's Roberts again peeling off from the um uh, his usual allies and joining the Liberals um and he writes his opinion where he basically says that the that the reason that the administration gave for adding the question uh, was a pretext. In other yeah. words, it was a lie. It wasn't the true reason, right? And the reason they had given was, oh, we need to know how many citizens there are uh, in, in the country in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act. But it turns out that no one's ever needed that information in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And um, and so this all looked like uh, it was contrived. So kudos to Chief Justice Roberts for saying that, right? That, you know, at some point, lies do matter, Right. Facts do matter. Um, And we caught you in a lie, um, you know, and there's now going to finally be some consequence flowing from that. I think that's a hugely important thing um, to come out of the census case um, that, um, you know, the court won't just be a patsy, won't always just sort of lie down and do what the administration thinks is sort of, um, you know, Convenient and important from a partisan perspective, so I do think that the, the census case represents that um, it can be used more broadly um, uh, to kind of push back i think against the administration, um, especially because this is also a case that involves the administration administrative Procedure act, and so this is uh, what what uh, you would use if you're challenging agency uh, decisions so th- there could be a few more applications of the uh, of this precedent that could be useful, and, and again, with all of these stakes of sort of equality in the background, you know, we get this—we get this sort of dramatic reversal by uh, by, by, by um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. So I think that's the bright spot in the in the term.
0: And and I don't want to get too much into the weeds on the specifics of the back and forth, but I want to ask a follow up that uh, hones in on your key point that maybe this was an example where Roberts served as a a um, standard carrier for truth and said, you know, and, and we're not going to believe the pretext. My understanding is that the clarity on how much of a pretext, the idea that, hey, we need to know how many citizens there are so that we can enforce the Voting Rights Act properly, that, and, and the switch that kind of came from um, what, Folks like you interpreted after the, the hearing portion of the case and the questions in the case before the justices and, and then what kind of evolved or switched or changed for the final decision that the, the, the changing factor were the documents that were discovered on the Republican, uh, strategists uh, hard drive, the guy in Florida and his daughter found some of the documents, and the documents kind of seem to indicate that wait you know that that 's not the real reason so w- without getting into kind of the the all the nitty gritty on those documents, do you feel that Roberts would have been a uh, a you know a, a a valiant uh defender of truth if not? If he didn't have, if we didn't know about those documents as well, would he would he still have have called the pretext bluff?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think I think we're going to need to know more um, uh, from Roberts. So we're going to need to have some access uh, to uh, the memos that went back and forth uh, to, to get a sense of the timing of his switch, uh, if it's indeed a switch. I think it probably was a switch. The question is, when does he start to have reservations? Um, about um, just sort of approving uh, the administration's position, um, and I'm glad you brought up the um, the kind of explosive news um, that that kind of hit in I guess in the week or two before everyone was expecting this decision to come down, right? Um, As, you know, as the session is coming to a close and everyone's expecting the most controversial decisions as we always do, um, you know, the the news hits that uh, that, uh, they found this, um, what, what appears to be smoking gun evidence, like connecting the dots that the plaintiffs weren't able to connect uh, in this sort of expedited lawsuit that they had filed, right, and um, in other words they the plaintiffs argued that um, there was this sort of nefarious plot on the part of the GOP uh, to drive down responses from non citizens and Hispanics living in the united states um, uh, but they but they they didn 't have that smoking gun evidence they they, they were trying to prove it. uh, Based on uh, a bunch of other circumstantial evidence. Um, They didn't have anyone sort of confessing that that's what they were up to, right? Um, But suddenly it looked like there was that evidence that could connect the dots, right? These guys, you know, the files discovered on this guy's hard drive. Um, indicated that he himself had conducted the research, his models showed that if you just added the citizenship question to the census, they could drive down the responses and they could get the information to do further work in terms of racial and partisan gerrymandering right This is that sort of smoking gun evidence that kind of hit the um, kind of hit the the air, airwaves and, and the, the newsstands um, in, in in the final weeks now I personally, and again, here, I'm speculating, think that it did have an effect. Mm. Um, but I'm speculating, I, I don't know for sure. Um, there wasn't a lot of time left. Um, so you would have expected, I think, that that opinion that, that, that say, Chief Justice Roberts, let, let's say um, there were five votes behind the scenes to uphold the administration, he probably would have assigned it to himself so that you didn't have a kind of very strident opinion that maybe someone like Thomas would have written, right? I think that would have worried someone like Roberts. Um, um, So you signed it to yourself, and so you've been writing it, you've been writing it. And a lot of the first part of the opinion reads that way, because he spends a lot of his time sort of um, talking about the constitutional powers and the obligation to do the census. And a lot of it is feeling as though he's going to uphold the administration's action, and then that comes to this sort of section, sort of buried in the middle of the opinion, where the, the key section where he says, "But I find that um, the reason that they give for adding it is a pretext, a lie." Um, so there's a, there's a lot of this evidence that suggests um, m- maybe sort of what you are implying, which is that that that, that this last-minute revelation of new evidence. Um, uh, you know, is the reason for the switch. Um, we, you know, we won't know. We don't. We won't know for sure. It's possible he had already changed his mind mm. and was already, you know, gravitating toward, um, you know, this other this other rationale for some other set of reasons. Um, but, but, I, but I'm with you. I I really do think that once, you know, once the this the, the new revelations um, came, then if you're worried about the court's reputation. Then history is really going to judge the court harshly, I think, right? If at that point, with those revelations, you still sort of affirm what the administration did, because it really looks like you're sort of covering something up at that point, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I have, to, I have to think that even if he had already changed his minds, this really probably, you know, convinced him that this was, you know, was the right way to solve the, the immediate dispute, which is to keep the case going. Uh, and allow this new evidence to be um, kind of tested, right? Because none of this stuff had been looked at very carefully by the courts or anything. But but at least if you kept the case going, if you didn't just give the administration a slam dunk win, then the plaintiffs would have had the chance to sort of probe that evidence and, you know, depose people and so forth. And um, that ultimately didn't happen, but only because the administration ends up giving up, right? Yeah. They end up Kind of waving the white flag um, just a yes. few days ago. Yes. Um And um, and and that itself is a momentous thing because you you got to think you know the chief is a very smart man. He knows that um, any even temporary loss for the administration, they're going to be butting up against all these deadlines, and that could. That could possibly be the last word. So he's willing to have that happen. So, you know, again, I think that's a piece of evidence suggests that, you know, he when he once he's changed his mind, he's really convinced that, um, you know, that's better than, uh, uh, you know, some worse outcome, which might be, you know, affirming something in the face of all this terrible uh, smoking gun evidence of wrongdoing.
0: Yes. And and the part of the white flag that I'm most curious about and I think a lot of people are really curious about, um, is what really happened with those uh federal lawyers, with the Justice Department lawyers and the ones who you know, and, and wanting why why did they want out? Were they pushed out? Um how how did that all go down? And then when uh Trump was thinking to go forward, uh, you know, what what were those discussions like? If he, when you can um uh get get those transcripts for us, Robert, I will, you know, (laughs) immediately, let's get you back on the show uh, immediately. Um, Lastly, yeah, yeah, that would be great if you can get that. In fact, if you get that and you come first on this show, I'll really be grateful. (laughs) That'd be super. (laughs) So last thing that I want to get your view on some of the follow-up questions from uh, the Supreme Court conversation. Listeners wanted more analysis around some of the talk from the Democratic presidential candidates around uh, about so-called fixes for the Supreme Court, whether that's Buttigieg, B- Buttigieg's idea to move the total number to fifteen justices, I guess five Democrat, five Republican, and five selected by a panel of some sort, or other ideas that we've heard around eighteen-year term limits, or even there's been discussion, but uh, you know around uh, you know packing the court or something, but. Uh, I, I think that – I've heard a rumor that FDR tried that and it, it didn't work out so so well for him. What, what's your view on the constitutionality and perhaps the politics um, of these uh, ideas to um, re- rejigger the Supreme Court, the, the makeup and the numbers?
1: So I, I've actually been um, supportive um, – and this is a position I've come to over time – Watching the court, thinking about the courts, um, studying the court sort of through its history um but i but I've come to the position that I, I do think that uh serious reform of the court's um, uh, Kind of personnel composition um reducing its overall influence uh um, and and kind of everybody's focus on that court would probably um be a good thing overall for us right that that um it wouldn't be the kind of distraction it is we wouldn't maybe look at the court as a kind of excuse to not do the hard work of uh turning out to vote uh, for example right um uh, uh, that 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 really would make the difference um, in, in our everyday lives. So I, I'm actually very supportive of, of of a wide number of possible proposals. Again, if they can if we can find a way to meet any sort of constitutional objections, and that includes my I mean my favorite is, uh, would be a term limit. And I think that um, if you look at the long sweep of the of the Supreme Court, I think that the average term. Um, that, that that a justice has served, um, you know. Again, some have died early or left the court, and so forth. But uh, something like uh, eighteen years or under, under something like that. And so, mm-hmm. I, I really don't see a justification, a good one, for uh, for life tenure. Um, n- nobody's really needed it, uh, you know, in that sense. Um, and I think that the risk that you have with with people serving for too long is they become so out of touch um, with Like you know, our most pressing concerns, um, areas of reform that they're more likely to do do harm than to sort of evolve in a way that's sort of democratically positive, right? They're more likely to sort of try to impose the norms, values, preferences of um, the last generation or maybe two generations ago. So, so I'm I'm a huge supporter now of. Uh, finding a way to do some kind of uh term limits and you know there's some practical questions you do you, you come across like you know maybe we can have staggered um, terms or you know something like this, or you know how do you how do you implement these kinds of things in a way um where you know sort of narrow partisan objections can be overcome because everyone you know you know anytime you reform something then someone 's going to complain simply because it 's going to hurt somebody temporarily you know one side or the other you got to find a way to kind of deal with some of those concerns while keeping some of the you know big big ticket um kind of items uh, on the table, you know the other proposals are to sort of pack the court. you can do it by manipulating the size of the court, you can reduce the number of people yeah. um, you, you could enlarge it you know that 's part of the, the, the I guess the uh, the judge the, 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 the uh, proposal is to uh, is to enlarge it, and that kind of dilutes the the power of any individual justice as well as a possibly um, the power of any faction, but you 're going to expect that there'll be maybe m- just more factions, just just potentially smaller ones, or if they really got organized right, on a, on a huge body like that, then that faction can be quite powerful so mm. it, it, you know that proposal can introduce some other uh, um, other kinds of problems, uh, but I will say that that having larger um, uh, judicial bodies is the kind of thing that other countries have tried. Um, international tribunals are typically larger, um, and um, you know that seems to work uh, in lots of ways for other countries. I do think that we're sort of stuck in a rut, and uh, we really do. Um, I do need to think about ways to, uh, to to do it. Now there are constitutional objections, obviously, you know, uh, to how to do this. But I, I don't I don't really think there are all that many. I mean, um, this, the Article Three of the Constitution's uh, fairly sparse uh, in terms of what it says. I mean, it actually says we only need to have one court, and that's the the Supreme Court. It doesn't say how many. Um, people have to be on that court.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, do, you know, it does talk about not um, uh, negatively impacting their salary um, uh, while they're serving, uh, serving, serving well. And so there is this um, belief that there's some notion of independence or at least not punishing individuals. But, but I don't think that, that's gonna, that that can or should stand in the way of sort of structural reform of the institution. Now, the politics are a whole different. Whole different story, of course.
0: Okay. We, we, we won't hold you responsible for politics. Just, just the Constitution. <laughs> you're, you're responsible yeah. only for the, the Constitution. R- Robert, thank you. Thanks for, uh, taking some bonus time, uh, with me and answering, uh, you know, some of these questions about the Supreme Court. And if it's okay with you, um, I now will play the conversation we previously had, which covers your excellent book, um, Practical Equality.
1: Looking forward to it. Thanks, as always.
0: Thank you. Uh, Let's do it now. Robert, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for having me on the show, Chris.
0: So I've been trying to decide for people like you, scholars, practitioners who've given their lives to constitutional law – are these the best of times or the worst of times? I mean, on the one hand, um, things are a bit rough. The Constitution um, is getting a beating. Every day it seems to bring, you know, every day seems to bring another affront to our most sacred document. On the other hand, it sure makes what you do incredibly relevant. So, which is it? I assume constitutional attacks are good for business? <laughs>
1: That's a that's a great observation. I think I think the answer is is that it's uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, it, it's it's true that we are seeing some uh, unprecedented uh, attacks on the Constitution, and certainly a number of the policies that we're seeing, both at the national level as well as at the state level, raise oftentimes questions of equality, um, and that and that's all that's all very distressing to a lot of people. Um, but on the other hand, you have this sort of growing thirst for I think I think constructive ways to think about um, it, these problems um, and so what I try to you know do with the book is to is to try to you know address both the a kind of a sometimes what we have is a sort of historical amnesia about mm. the the kind of struggles that we've already gone through uh, but also you know I'm, I'm trying to appeal to you know this this real hunger for you know positive Uh, approaches to the the kind of problems that we're seeing in the news every day.
0: So let's talk about two of the ideas that that you just raised, and they really are what drive um, your book. One is the question of equality, and maybe we'll even start with what is equality, and how do you define it today, and, and particularly when you outline some of the outrageous um, inequalities that we've had in, in our history, and then, and then I'll get into a little bit because I really want to get into your approach, which, as you just said, it is. It's a constructive, practical guide to try to create or how to drive progress and it's coming at a time when, on the one hand, yes, I think there is an incredible thirst for um, some constructive action. How can we find common ground? And yet, we're also seeing, and we're seeing it a little bit now as the 2020 race heats up, and, and questions of defining, you know, what what should, for example, the Democratic Party stand for? This question of how aggressive. And you know, I don't mean this in a negative way. Radical one should be aggressive. Let's just say one should be in pursuits of of goals and equality and justice versus how constructive should one be? And I, so I, I think you really have hit on at least two of the major themes that are driving society um, today, uh, as far as as far as I can tell. So so let's let's start with the equality question. Um, what defines inequality today? What are the key areas of social inequality that you would focus on?
1: Sure, it, it turns out that when we ask people you know whether they believe in equality, we get sort of universal agreement right that everybody embraces the idea of equality in the abstract and this is this is great news right that um, at least at that level of things, you know everybody's on the same page, but then what happens is that as we start to talk about you know specific problems, specific applications of the idea of equality things start to break down pretty quickly and I suppose my conception of equality and where I start is just this basic idea that um, the one thing that I think most people will agree on is that equality means that people in similar situations ought to be treated similarly and at that level of generality, we, we get agreement, but you know we, we can't really solve a lot of real problems uh, at that level of generality. And this is where the sort of prag- pragmatic quality of the book comes into play, um, and that is that the book really tries to show that um, much of our disagreements really aren't at the level of principle, but rather – Kind of concern about what happens when we embrace people's claim for equality. That there's a whole range of um, uh, of things that people worry about. Let's call them the social consequences, right, of equality, right? Uh, and I break them down into sort of three. Uh, one is that uh, people sometimes worry that if you extend equality to somebody else then it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the institution because oftentimes what what, what people are, are begging for is to be allowed uh, to access some institution or some sort of social good that they've been denied access to in the past. So think about education, right? Think about um, uh, a marriage. These are all the kinds of things where a lot of people who objected were worried that, notions of marriage, notions of education would be uh, completely altered. Another concern that people often have is what I call stigmatization, right? That um, because equality is a kind of deeply moral question, um, that when we say that someone has violated someone's equality rights we're actually marking the wrongdoer in a powerful way and sometimes the concern about stigmatizing somebody will actually cause someone to back off the equality argument And i think that we can see lots of examples of this in the criminal justice area as well as in the pre- the, the recent dispute over uh... president trump's muslim ban a lot of people i think worried about uh... Um, kind of finding that there was religious animosity there because it would have meant also saying that the president was a religious bigot. Um, And I'll just briefly mention the third one. We can talk more in detail. But the third concern that often causes people to stumble is that they're worried about Uh, backlash, that if if people really disagree, they'll resist. And if they resist, this can undermine some of the other kinds of things that you might want to accomplish. So we can see this most vividly in the history of the Supreme Court of the United States, where the Supreme Court, while it was kind of involved with um, advancing Uh, the project of integration, put off a whole bunch of issues, for example, uh, like uh, same-sex, excuse me, uh, uh, interracial marriage, uh, kept putting off issues of that sort uh, for fear of sort of dissipating its energy and creating too much resistance to what it was trying to accomplish.
0: Let's establish a little bit more your overall argument. So one of the questions around seeking equality is why not just make challenges under equal protection claims. Equal protection is covered in, in at least two areas of the Constitution. And so if I'm facing or if a group is facing or a party is facing um, inequality, why not just make challenges under equal protection? What, why is that a difficult way to go?
1: Yeah, so, so this is one of the kind of strategic calculations that lawyers, activists, I think everyday people even will have to – Kind of consider right, um, and you know the question that you posed is: Should we should we approach a problem of inequity that we see um, in the traditional way? Should we call it a, a, a sort of equality violation with all that that entails, or can we attack it in a slightly different way? Can we can we attack it through the due process route that you have suggested, or more broadly speaking, treat it as a problem of fairness? Right, and there's some trade-offs. Either way, um, I think the thing that 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 sort of leads a lot of activists, a lot of regular people to kind of wrap their arms around the traditional equality path is is that it's a it's a more powerful idea in lots of ways, right because when we say that someone has denied um, our equal protection rights, we're saying that that we as sort of moral beings as citizens. As members of this political community have been treated kind of wrongfully in a, in a deep way, right so in the school segregation cases, right the claim is is that by keeping the african American school children out of the schools they're they're being treated um, at this very very deep level of sort of civic equality in a way that that requires Kind of a big answer to right um, so that's the attraction to equality, and then once we understand that that's what equality as as both law and rhetoric is supposed to accomplish, then we also see that it be- that the way we talk about equality can also become an obstacle right that um, if there's a violation, we tend to want a big sort of a remedy, and then. An alternative, as you say, the fairness idea might actually take a little bit of the heat out of the conversation sometimes because, for one thing, we're not necessarily talking about who is deserving of equality. Um, And when we talk in that way, we often get tripped up over different kinds of people, different categories of people, questions of race, sexuality, and so forth, that can become real stumbling blocks to justice. When we talk about fairness, we don't have to get wrapped up in the same kind of conversation. We can focus instead on whether a certain policy, a certain practice is lacking something like notice or a, a fair chance to be um, uh, to be heard. and 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 this sometimes can be a very different way of solving some of the same problems.
0: So what are the next best solutions? That's the route that you advocate. It's the route that you outline. I think you would characterize next best solutions as um, part of your constructive path towards creating equality or creating a path towards equality. So what are those next best solutions and why are, why is that the right way to go?
1: Sure. The, the sort of roadmap that I have sort of offered in this book is – um, is it, sort of two steps, right? The first is that when when people see a problem of inequality, then they should certainly talk about it in this sort of traditional way. They should make full-throated equality arguments, talk about the kind of the moral dignity, the, the respect that people are entitled to, uh, and demand that equal respect. But the second step is that I think we all have to recognize when we're running into obstacles, when when we're running into a kind of resistance um, to that normal way of talking about equality. And then if we run into resistance, that sometimes we can we can get there through another path. And so I've identified a number of sort of different kinds of arguments that sometimes can do some of the work of equality. Um, fairness is one that we just talked about. Um, I talk about reason, which is a- another way of saying that we should care about the facts. And uh, sometimes when we care about the facts and probe those facts, uh, we can we can do some of the work of reducing in, um, of inequality without all of the other sort of baggage. Um, another idea is um, that there is a longstanding prohibition against cruelty, um, something that's contained in the United States Constitution, but also in um, in our state constitutions. And so sometimes when we say that we're going to uh, stop the government from uh, treating people in a cruel way, we can also kind of minimize some of the the unequal burdens that
0: certain groups face. So now let's start addressing what I can only assume would be some of the questions against what you're advocating. And there's some of the questions that came to to my mind. And, you know, I'll start with, I could, you know, this question of why should progressives settle for Mm -hmm. next best solutions? So I could just see true believers cringing at your term, one of the terms that you use, of practical egalitarianism. And you have a line early in the book where you write, whenever we struggle to agree about equality, we have an obligation to seek out alternative solutions. And and then this, to me, was kind of a payoff line. We do that by substituting the idea of equality with the next best thing. Is there any next best thing to equality?
1: I think there is. And and what I I try to uh... show throughout the book is is that in fact activists in the past progressive activists whether they were opposing slavery or opposing uh... segregation or trying to do something about uh, sex equality that in, in fact activists in the past um, you know, tried to use a whole variety of tools uh... and in a way that's what i'm suggesting that Um, These other arguments, these next best arguments, um, are really um, to be understood as alternative tools. And if you think that inequality in America is a complicated structural problem today, then wouldn't we want as many tools as possible? Um, In other words, if... Um, we think of the sort of the equality approach as the hammer in our in our toolkit, then we have to recognize that sometimes it might be better to use a chisel or to use, um, you know, some other instrument, a screwdriver. Uh, And that's what these other things do. And I say that progressives have to keep a number of things in, in mind. One is, is that overall, we we need to be worried about the present. We need to be worried about reducing the actual tangible harms that ver- vulnerable populations in society are experiencing. And so, you know, if you're really committed to uh, kind of reducing inequality, um, we can't just be focused on the kind of abstract goal of of maximum equality in the future because sometimes... By by only focusing on that, we'll, we can lose sight of the actual injuries that certain populations face, and we can sometimes reduce those tangible harms right now in other ways. The other thing that I think that I'm hoping that progressives will keep in mind as they read this book is that um, the long term here is just to build a broad culture of equal dignity, and we can do that by using these other ideas as well when the main idea won't work um, because what you're doing is you're sort of developing a whole bunch of wins along the way, and a number of these ideas, free speech, uh, no cruelty, uh, the rule of reason, fair play, all have sort of deep and lasting connections with the traditional idea of equality, and so when we win in these other ways, we're also sort of building in a long-term way the culture. Of Equal dignity now there's also one other thing this is sort yeah. of the negative side of things, and I think that progressives also need to keep in mind that um, we need to also avoid what I call demoralizing losses right that you know so I sometimes get the question well, why don't we just you know put all our chips into this basket why don 't we fight as hard as we can, and you know if we lose, we lose, but we sort of go down swinging and I think the problem with that mindset is is that you end up in places where um, you get rulings like uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, like uh, Korematsu versus United States, the, the, the horrific internment cases, um, and I can name a, a number of situations where you know an important institution like the Supreme Court doesn't just rule against the pro-equality side, but they say a bunch of things that are really demoralizing. For activists. They're demoralizing for regular people. They're terrible for the populations that are vulnerable and are, and are being affected. And, and those tragic precedents, as I call them, really then also are very difficult to um, uproot. Um, and so I think we need to think about
0: avoiding those demoralizing losses as well. It's such a challenging question. And, and this point that you're raising, it's a point that I've heard Adam Liptak make recently. And he's saying this in terms of uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the ways in which the court does not usually seek to move vastly or too speedily ahead of um, public, widespread public opinion. And and we can talk about that in a second. But I, I feared that you're, you know, in, this is the question of what, what times are we actually in? Are we in these times where we are looking for constructive solutions? We are looking for ways to come together and find common ground and that's the, you know, I think the, the bulk area that you're talking about. Are we in times where we just are, are tired and we can't take it anymore? And the history of inequality in this country, that we all know about, that you document, that you care about, you know, viscerally um, uh, throughout your book, and and that has, in some ways, gotten worse over, let's say, the last decades in terms of I- economic inequality and the t- the ways in which mm. um, other forms of, e- of of inequality, whether that's gender based, race based, religious based. Um, get entwined in economic in- inequality. And I could hear someone saying, you know, Cy, that's a really great argument, and I understand you. It, it's practical, and you're trying to get wins where you can. And I love the chisel instead of, you know, throwing the bomb. But aren't we over all that now? Is, you know, shouldn't, isn't it just a bit too late to take incremental – action. And actually, aren't we at a stage, and and maybe in a way Trump is doing it in the fight with the wall, where he's going to go down swinging, hmm. he may or may not get it, but he's going to communicate to his base. And I know I'm kind of conflating issues here, because that's a political stand, and we're talking about other issues of, of, of equality. But but this question of maybe, maybe taking a stand is what needs to be done, and maybe waiting for incremental steps on equality. You know, we're, we're 250 years into this experiment. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be at a fully equal stage by this point?
1: Right. One of the um, all of that is, I think, well taken. Um, one of the great things about uh, reading history, understanding history, and kind of thinking about the problem of equality through history first. Is that it'll give us some perspective, right? Um, I, I do think that we have come a long way in lots of areas on this front, uh, in terms of the kind of basic things that that we think about uh, civic civic equality and to some extent social equality. A lot of the the laws and practices uh, that used to that used to hold people down explicitly um, no longer exist. Now there are a lot of other things that are getting in the way, but but we have made um, quite a quite a lot of progress in lots of areas, so I don't think that it's uh, historically accurate to say that we're in exactly the same place. I do think we're in a tough spot. I do think that what we are seeing are more creative policies, ones that don't explicitly use race or you know some explicit um, criteria that is off limits, and that those you know those policies still work. Some serious harm. So maybe the best example would be the travel ban, right? That that you know, we no longer have um, an explicit policy or law that that says um, Muslims uh, simply can't come to the United States. Instead, what we see is a travel ban that uses sort of country of origin, and it doesn't keep everybody out, but it still falls pretty heavily on these countries, these travelers these families in the United States um, that have family in these other countries still, which are 97% Muslim. So we we, we are seeing more sophisticated um, forms of inequality, um, even though we don't see the sort of broad-based forms um, anymore. So, uh, you know, what other ways are we in a kind of tough spot? I do think if the focus is on the Supreme Court of the United States, it's right to be pessimistic. Um, it, it's true that progressives have lost the Supreme Court for a generation. The, the, the court will not be predictably um, helpful on lots of issues, from you know sex equality to race equality uh, to wealth um, equality. Right. That, that this, the, the, the idea that the court will so, sort of be up the forefront um, is just a fantasy. But I think that what this Realization also does, though, is creates an opportunity because there's a whole lot of uh, room at the state and local levels for all kinds of activism, um, uh, You know, both political activism, but also using some of the arguments that I talk about in the book um, to talk to state judges, um, state Supreme Court justices, mayors, governors, attorney generals, um, and Um, I think that there's a whole bunch of space um, to actually uh, get some things done on issues from um, racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Uh, One example would be the state of Washington, which has recently read its state constitution to go more broadly on the question of equality than the Supreme Court has um, in terms of the U.S. Constitution. Um, The Washington State Supreme Court recently Uh, struck down its uh, capital punishment law, um, relying on a study that said that for a very long time, uh, the implementation of the death penalty in Washington state was racially discriminatory. So I would point to examples like that, and there are others as well, to suggest that there's quite a lot of room for activism on behalf of equality in other areas.
0: And you've led me to a, a perfect place to, to end and uh, have a last question, which brings it back to uh, your terrific book. So in preparing for the conversation, I watched a video of you from last year where you were previewing the book. So the book had, you, I think you were, you know, still, uh, well, it obviously hadn't come out, but you maybe were still doing some writing on it even. And you characterized it first as, quote, the fastest book you ever wrote and then as your Quote, effort to offer some optimism for people and groups who feel these times are particularly hard for them. Describe that optimism. Uh, I think that that's what a lot of people are looking for um, these days. Uh, what's um, at the at the root of your optimism?
1: I guess my sense of optimism comes from the belief that, first, most people do care about equality. And they care about it in a kind of deep and lasting way. Even though we have a hard time you know agreeing about the specifics right that we 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 worry about um, what might happen if we you know enforce the idea of equality, um, we worry about the idea going too far, we still love the idea we believe it is something that's very important in terms of how our society is constituted and I think that the optimism also comes from the sense that even if we've got a you know institution like the Supreme Court that is going to be mostly hostile to equality arguments that there are all these other places where I can see there is progress already happening um, to reduce the kinds of inequities that I see every day, and also, I think that there's a lot of interest in wanting to kind of make progress where progress can be made. I look to the example in uh, Florida where Um, for years, Florida has been perhaps the worst state in the union in disenfranchising felons uh, forever, right? That if you commit a a single felony in Florida, you were, until recently, uh, prevented for the rest of your life from voting ever again in another election. This is amazing. And recently, people in, in Florida just decided that they'd had enough, and they passed a, a referendum which changed their own state constitution and re-enfranchised something like 1.3, 1.4 million voters. To me, that is a, a great reason to be optimistic about the power of everyday people to push for equality.
0: Well, I'm sure that uh, a lot of folks uh, and a lot of listeners will take that um, and and will um, take, take optimism where they can find it. Um, Robert thank you thank you for uh, the conversation and uh, thank you for the book that you wrote
1: thank you so much Chris it's a pleasure to be with you
0: that was my conversation with Robert Tsai my thanks again to Robert for both parts and you for listening quick reminders sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com and if you liked this conversation please give it the 5 star rating on iTunes that's all for today I'll talk with you soon